start warming up. And then this morning at 7 o'clock, I got the sign to say, okay, you need to come in and be the, uh, the reliever. So, delighted to be with you all here this morning. Hopefully it's a passage that he has not preached on recently. But if you would turn to Philippians uh, chapter 3, we'll be looking in Philippians chapter 3. It's been quite a week in the news, hasn't it? Uh, values has come up quite a bit. As a matter of fact, because of the Harvey Weinstein issue, if you were to Google Hollywood values, one of the articles comes up and says, what Weinstein teaches us about Hollywood values. And I would say that it's not a very complimentary article about Hollywood and what they believe. And that's kind of in contrast because it's the way of the world to what was also going on in Washington, D.C. this week, where Family Research Council had their Values Voter Summit. And they're completing that summit this morning with a worship service, something that you would not see in Hollywood. And so what are the markers of success today according to society and to some extent in the Christian uh, community? Well, one would be, what do we have? Possession sometimes is a mark of success. Or, what have I done? Sometimes what we do, particularly men, we derive identity from that. Or, who do we know? We see this a lot in Hollywood, but it's not just limited to Hollywood. Or perhaps who we are, where we beat on our chest and say, look at me, look at what I've done. Now I'm going to quote a great theologian, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, Norman Vincent Peale, who says this, Believe in yourself. Have faith in your abilities. Without a humble but reasonable confidence in your own powers, you cannot be successful or happy. Now I would take great disagreement with that, because what is his focus on as we heard this morning? Uh, what does this focus on? And so my principle this morning is this. True contentment comes from whom you know and what you are, not what you are, not what you have, nor what you have done. Only one person counts as to whom we should know. So let's look at our passage this morning. I'll read from Philippians 3, starting with, uh, chapter, uh, with verse 3 through um, 11. And we're going to focus on really verses 5 on. Paul writes, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And let's pray. 
Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you'd encourage us, strengthen us, challenge us, speak to us where we need to be, and may we focus on Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be talking about uh, Paul this morning, and we'll be talking about what I would call the Great Exchange, or another subtitle might be Garbage for Christ. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, we'll see that as we look through this for this great exchange. And Paul begins, really, I would state in verse 5 and 6, what I would call Paul's basis, actually Paul's false basis for confidence, contentment, and salvation. Because he says who he was. He begins in verse 5 when he uh, talks about confidence in the flesh. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and he goes on. And what he says is, I was an authentic Jew. I was circumcised on the eighth day. And that's the proudest claim that a Jew could make. It shows that his parents were meticulous in keeping the law. He was circumcised precisely on the right day. Again from Genesis 17 says this, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not your offspring. So he was circumcised on the eighth day, on the right day. And he's of the nation of Israel. Firms that he descended from the nation of Israel. He has all the rights and privileges by birth and not by conversion. He goes on, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. A small tribe, but that tribe was highly esteemed and known for their strength, courage, and purity. He goes on and he says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had it all. He was a Hebrew born of Hebrew parents. There was no heathen blood in him. He was a blue blood of the Jewish faith. He was not a Hellenistic Jew. He was not a convert. And then he goes on when he talks about who he was, now what he did by his own efforts and by his diligence. He says, as to the law, he was a Pharisee. That was the strictest of the Jewish sects. They were lawyers. They were legalists. They bound themselves to obey a myriad of commandments. And they went so far because they did not want to violate any possible way of commandments of God. So they would erect all these other, and I would call them commandments, or regulations, or stipulations to keep them from violating the law of God. He goes on as to zeal, a persecutor. For the purity of his covenant. And zeal for God is what marked a servant of God. In Psalm, which again refers to Numbers 25, uh, when there was a plague because of the immorality of the nation of Israel in the wilderness, says this, Then Phineas stood up, intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Elijah talks about his zeal or his jealousy for God. In 1 Kings he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. But he was zealous, he was jealous for the Lord. And he was a persecutor. The word in the Greek has the idea of pursuing or chasing, such as a hunter or an army that's going into battle, pursuing. And he brought to prison and death innocent people. 
Again, we see his charge in Acts chapter 9, where Paul speaks of this, or speaks of Paul and says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he was a persecutor and he was zealous in that. He was a model Jew. He was, in his word, blameless according to the law. Again, he was like the rich young ruler uh, that we see in Luke. And as he comes to Jesus, Jesus lays out the commands and says, I have kept all these things from my youth. And so Paul, according to the thinking of his day with the Pharisees, was blameless. He kept the external laws. He conformed to the external laws of what was considered to be the requirements of God. Again, he was, a mo- he was a model Jew. He was diligent as to the law. He was satisfied with himself and he was content. I think back to my own life. And again, some of you are here this summer heard a little bit of my testimony. But I thought when I was in high school that God graded on the curve. I was a good student. I was on the uh, honor society. I was an athlete. I was recruited to go to the Naval Academy as a student in row crew. I was an acolyte in the church or an altar boy in the Episcopal Church. And I thought that I was saved. And I could identify with what Paul was talking about. And yet, that's not what the Lord says. The Philippian jailer says to Paul and the others, What must I do to be saved? And what was the answer? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Lord opened my eyes and I realized that it's not by works that I'm saved. So I'd ask you this morning, what are you basing your salvation on? Is it who you are, or at least who you think you are, or what you have done? Confidence in the flesh that Paul mentions here a number of times does not save. It has to be confidence in the Lord. Paul then goes on as he talks about his false basis for contentment or confidence, or salvation. He goes on in verses 7 and 8, what I would call the second point, is Paul's worthless treasure. And what's sad is if you don't know that your treasure is worthless. Now there's two times of the year that I really like watching TV. How many are Twilight Zone fans? Just a few of you? I guess I'm dating myself here. But on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, they have a uh, Twilight Zone marathon. And there's one story some of you more mature folks might remember. Talk about the Rip Van Winkle caper. And it goes about these men who had robbed this bank, they robbed this vault, and got all these gold um, 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 bars. And they realized that they'd have trouble selling these gold bars, so they went into suspended animation for 100 years. And then they wake up after 100 years, and they're in a cave out in the desert. And things have changed. And of course they are greedy. And they start killing off one another. And they're going across and the guy says, I need water. I'll give you a bar of gold for water. That doesn't work. And finally he gets out to the road. And this, the last person remaining, a car comes by, a futuristic car after 100 years, and says, I'll give you a gold bar. Just give me water. And then he dies. And the person picks up this gold bar and says, Wow, we've known how to make gold for a hundred years. This is worthless. 
And so this person, they went in hibernation for 100 years. What they thought was valuable was in fact worthless. And the same thing for us. What do we think is valuable yet in God's eyes is worthless? Paul tells us some of these things as he goes on in verse 7. As he talks about his past. He talks about what is false estimate of his own excellence. Uh, again, as he goes in uh, verse 7, he says this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Concerning things that were gained to him, he now considers them loss. The things that uh, he talked about, his pedigree, his zeal, his covenant relationship with the Lord as what he thought. And he describes this in business terms of gains, which by the way here is in the plural, and loss, which is in the singular. He talks about gains and losses. If you're in business or if you do your home budget, you have to look at gains and losses. Can you balance the checkbook? This is not like the government. Can you balance the budget? And so he talks about business terms, gains and losses. And he talks about a perfect tense. We've talked about this before. Past action, ongoing results to the, uh, to the present. He says, I have counted as loss all these things. He says this in verse 7. He has suffered the loss. It's a deliberate decision on his part. He had something to lose in his own mind, but now he considers them liabilities to his walk with the Lord. They are hindrances to his relationship with Christ. And he says, because of Christ, or some translations say, for the sake of Christ. That is the reason for his change. Because of Jesus Christ. That's the fact indicating a reason for his change. And when did this happen? on the road to Damascus. We talked about or I read earlier about why he was going to Damascus. But he came across Christ. He had that encounter with Christ and it changed his life. He came or he went from being a persecutor of the church to actually one who was persecuted for his faith. Have you had a life-changing experience with Christ? It doesn't have to be as dramatic as Paul's was. I was in Young Life at a Young Life meeting. Um, our football team lost a game with 12 seconds to go so we could not go to the regional championship. So as a result, I went to this Young Life weekend, was not a believer, but I heard the gospel for the first time. And then it just opened up. And I said, this makes sense. Was it miraculous? Yes. Was it dramatic? No. So your experience does not have to be dramatic. It may be, but it doesn't have to be. But you need to evaluate what you think is priceless. Does it compare to Christ? What is your treasure? What are you holding on to that perhaps is hindering your walk with the Lord? And that's what Paul did. He looked at what he had, and then he compared it to Christ, and he saw what he did not have. And so he talks about as his worthless treasure. He talks about his past, and then he talks about his change of heart in verse 8. He goes on in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. There's emphasis here at the beginning of verse 8. Some translations say indeed. Others say more than that. It's a Greek instruction. Sometimes it's hard to translate. But it's for emphasis here as Paul writes and there's a change Intense. There's a change in life. He went from the perfect tense, past action, to now present tense. He's talking about counting the loss in the present. Two times. 
present tense. I continue to count as loss those things that I once thought was valuable. It's a decision reinforced daily to continuous moral choices. And we have those. He says, I continue to count these things as loss. And he did suffer loss from being a well-respected rabbi to being one who is persecuted for his faith. As a matter of fact, where did he write this epistle? He wrote it from prison in his letter to the Philippians. And so, all that he was and all that he had, he considers these things a loss. And why does he do that? As he says again in verse 8, I consider these things loss uh, for knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. The surpassing value equals knowledge here. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, he says. It speaks of a relationship, a personal relationship with the Lord. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who is known. It's knowledge about Christ. That is the ultimate quest. And he links here the divine side when he talks about him as Christ. That's a Greek word for the Hebrew word of Messiah. God's anointed one. He has his human name of Jesus. He combines the two natures of Christ, his divine and his human, into the person of Jesus Christ. This is who he wants to know. It's of surpassing value. And he says, my Lord. And it indicates a personal, intimate knowledge of Christ. Not just intellectual knowledge. Again, many are familiar with the Psalm 23 and how does David start it? He talks about the Lord is my shepherd. I recently spoke at a funeral. And this is one of the favorite passages of the person who was deceased. Psalm 23. And David here is speaking about the Lord is his shepherd who cares for him as a shepherd cares for the flock. It speaks of a personal, Lord is my shepherd. And Paul is talking about that here as he talks about surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We can have that personal relationship with the God-man, with Jesus Christ. We can have that personal relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. And it's not just a one-way knowledge. It's not just us knowing Him. Jesus in Matthew 7, 21 says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? That sounds like works righteousness, doesn't it? But Jesus goes on, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It speaks of that personal relationship. And knowledge in the old is also an Old Testament concept where it speaks of God's knowledge of His people in election and grace. Again in Exodus 33, it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing I have spoken to you, I will do. For you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And he goes on with the people in Jeremiah and says this, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. As we had that personal relationship with the Lord, we had redemption. 
we have reconciliation. We have that relationship with the Lord. Do you know Christ? Not just in an intellectual way, but do you know Christ? More importantly, does He know you? Will we be like those people in Matthew 7 where He says, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Has it changed your life? Has it changed Paul? And remember, Jesus is a good shepherd. He talks about it in John 10. The good shepherd, how does it go? Knows his sheep. And what about his sheep? They know him. They hear his voice. And they follow him. Do you know the Lord? Have you evaluated what you have or what you think is of value and given it to him? So again, Paul talks about his false basis for contentment. He talks about his worthless treasure. And lastly, we go on to what I would call Paul's priceless garbage, verses 9 through 11. And as a matter of fact, and Ken touched on this about goals, Paul gives three goals of what he wants to accomplish here in verses 9 through 11. What we see is that Paul's perspective changes and his focus changes. Now what's the definition for perspective? I went to the dictionary says this. This is the capacity to view things in their true relations or relative importance. Now again, some of you heard my flying stories. And again, when you're driving in a car, you get all sorts of warning lights. You don't really worry about it until they become red. Well, when I was flying, getting ready to take off on a catapult on an aircraft carrier in the Mediterranean, right after I took off, and it was not just a little red light, it was a big red light telling me that my starboard engine was now on fire. That's an issue when you're flying. You got lots of gas, and there's no place to land but on the carrier. That, by the way, changed my focus. My perspective changed, my focus changed, and what's the definition of uh, focus? As a noun, it's a central point as of attraction, attention, or activity. My focus at that point was to land single engine safely on the carrier. As a verb, it means to concentrate. And yes, I was very concentrated in what I was doing. I had a vested interest in this. So, focus despite disorientation and distraction. And Paul has a new perspective. He talks about this in 1 Corinthians 1:18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so Paul's perspective has changed on that road to Damascus. What was once valuable is no longer valuable. What was once worthless and foolish is now speaks of value and of wisdom. And he talks about the first purpose in verse 8 is to gain Christ. He gave up everything to gain Christ. He's again using financial language in terms of gains and losses. He suffers loss for the sake of Christ. He counts everything but rubbish in comparison to Christ. Now, if you have some of the old translations, it says dung. That's the word. Dung, excrement. He's using strong terms to say, what I thought was valuable is really worthless. It needs to be cast off. It does not compare to anything but the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. He speaks of what he had with utter revulsion as he considers them to be worthless and detestable. Again, perhaps he has the minds of Jesus, the words of Jesus in mind in Mark, where Jesus 
says this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Speaks of communion with Christ. Paul cannot afford to gain the whole world and lose Christ. Speaks of communion with Christ. Speaks of that personal relationship with Christ. And there's a now and a not yet aspect of gaining Christ. Just like with salvation. We have that relationship now. But there's so much more to come. When we are finally with him. And so the first purpose that Paul speaks about here. Because again he says. I suffer and count them as rubbish. In order that. Oftentimes when you see the words in order that or that, it's either going to be speaking of purpose or result. And here it's purpose. First purpose, as I said, was to gain Christ. The second is found in verse 9. He wants to be found in Christ. And this speaks of justification. He goes on that I may gain Christ in verse 8 and be found in Him. Well, what does that mean to be found in Christ? He tells us the following words. He says, be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That speaks of justification. That's what it means to be found in Christ. It also speaks of union. He says we are in Him. Throughout the Scripture it talks about us. We abide in Him. He abides in us. We abide in His Word. His Word abides in us. It speaks of that. It speaks of that intimate relationship. And he says his righteousness is not derived from the law as it was in his pre-Christian days. As it was in my own life when I thought, I knew not everybody's going to go to heaven, not everybody's perfect. God had the grade on the curve. So where do you fall on the curve? And you know, what is God's standard? What is God's standard? Perfection. James says we break the law in one point. We're guilty of it all. And so it speaks of his change in his view of righteousness. The righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, not works of the law. And it's not just intellectual assent. It's not just head knowledge. Again, James speaks to this in James 2.19. He says, you believe that God is one? He says, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And the demons certainly have an intellectual knowledge of who God is. That is not what saved. It is that intimate personal relationship with Christ. That is what saves us. Faith is not just an intellectual ascent. It's an act of personal trust and reliance and self-surrender to Christ. It's trusting in Him alone for salvation. not trusting in our works. It's not trusting in our good looks. It's not trusting in the faith of a family member. It's trusting in Christ alone. And Jesus is the object of faith. Again, Paul tells us in Galatians 2.16, he says, Yet we know that a person not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because works of the law, no one will be justified. Righteousness comes from God on the basis of faith. And that's what Paul emphasizes here. That is not the world's view. That's not the world's standard. I'm going to quote two more great theologians. And then I'll wrap it up here. The first is Bon Jovi. He says in the song, Believe in love. Believe in magic. Hell, believe in Santa Claus. Believe in others. Believe in yourself. Believe in your dreams. If you don't, who will? 
And then a couple weeks ago, there was a sci-fi movie, Serenity, uh, sci-fi based upon the future and these planets. And they have this person called Shepherd Book. And that name is chosen because the shepherd with the idea of pastoring. And he's the one who gives spiritual guidance to the other people on the ship. And what does Pastor Book or Shepherd Book say? He says this, I don't care what you believe, just believe it. And I'm thinking, that's the way of the world. That's nonsense. The object of faith must be valid. It's not the fervor of your faith that counts. That's what the world says. Hey, doesn't matter what you believe, just believe it and believe it wholeheartedly. And I think back when I was doing beach evangelism as a midshipman many, many, many years ago and a person was saying, if I want to believe in this chair, I can believe in this chair. And I'm going, what an idiot. I didn't say that to his face. But the object of faith must be valid. And it has to be Jesus Christ. And so the first thing is to gain Christ. The second is to be found in Him. And He goes on. The third purpose, the third goal is to know Christ. We see that in verse 10. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings becoming Him, uh, becoming like Him in death. What does He mean by that? Again, He wants to know Christ personally. That outweighs everything else. That personal encounter. And what we're talking about here is sanctification. Verse 9 was justification. Here is sanctification. It's that process. And the word, at least in my translation, says and the power could also be translated in. And it's going to link the next two clauses together. In the power of His resurrection and what's coordinated with this. And then he goes on in verse 10. And may share in His sufferings. Those two things go together. What is he talking about here? He wants to know the power of the resurrected Christ. Our victory is found in a resurrected Christ, not in a dead Christ who's still in the grave. And he wants to talks about the fellowship of the sufferings. It's not the idea of martyrdom. It's not the idea of self-flagellation. Oftentimes during Easter, you'll see across the world, some people place themselves up on crosses trying to suffer like Christ did. That's not what he's talking about. Or they'll take whips and they'll whip themselves. Or they'll get a, and I'll call it a so-called friend to whip them with that whip. That's not what he's talking about here. But it's to know Christ who suffered and died for him. But who also is risen. It speaks of union with Christ. Paul again writes it in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Not two separate experiences, but they're different aspects of the same experiences. And what is the result of all this stuff? We see it in verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now that's just not wistful thinking here in his part. This is actually the result of his goals. What he's saying is, he will attain the resurrection from the dead in the future. That speaks of glorification. Paul in this passage speaks of justification and an act where God declares us not guilty. Sanctification, the process where he's making us what he's already declared us to be, righteous. He speaks here of glorification, that day in the future when we will be with the Lord. So, Paul had this life-changing experience that changes perspective. Where are you? Paul had the goals that he wanted to accomplish in his walk with the Lord. And he could only do it by the power of the Lord. He wanted to gain Christ. He wanted to be found in Him. 
and he wanted to know Christ and everything else was rubbish in comparison. As we prepare to take communion just a little bit, I beg that you consider these things. Where are you with the Lord? Because the Lord paid the cost, paid the penalty that we deserve. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks for who you are. And we're, Lord, we look at the life of Paul who had it all according to the world, according to his society, but he realized he had nothing. I pray, Lord, that you'd work in our lives, that we would gain you, that we'd be found in you, and that we would know you in an intimate, personal way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The um, opportunity to worship the Lord in our giving, um, and before we take up our offering, and by the way, if you're a visitor, don't feel compelled in any way to make an offering unless the Lord is leading you in that direction. But before we take up our offering and worship, let's, let's pray. Lord God, we acknowledge you. We acknowledge, uh, as, as our friend uh, Paul Wrigley has preached, that we are united with Christ. For all of those who believe that by faith, we are united with him. And this not of ourselves, but it's a gift from you, O Lord. And because you have given us so much, Lord, we pray that you will use our offerings, our worshipful offerings to you um, in acknowledgement of who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, use them uh, to bring about the proclamation of the gospel through the ministries at Redeemer Presbyterian.